Well, this week is um, Thanksgiving. I'm sure many of you know that, but I was thinking this week about how Thanksgiving would, could be so much better. Um, I know you're like, well, we don't, we don't mess with good things, but, but what if we had steaks instead of turkey? Like, see, I knew I wasn't the only one who thought this. Thanksgiving would be so much better with beef than it would with turkey. Um, I don't have a say in this, so poultry wins, but, but I was thinking how in the middle of the idea of this, um, this so I'll give you like some glimpse in how my brain works. It's, it's messed up, I'll be the first to clarify. And, and so my brain's a little, little weird, but I was thinking, well, yeah, but we don't have beef, but beef comes from cattle. And I was thinking, like, I, I wonder what ranches are like. And then I was thinking about what, you know, cattle are branded at ranches. I'm thinking, I'm glad we don't have brands. And then I started thinking about this, like, but, but we are kind of branded by different stuff. I, I told you, my brain's weird. and It jumps to all kinds of stuff in a hurry. But I was thinking how, how we're branded by different kinds of things, right? So some today might be wearing a class ring. And so you're saying, hey, I went to this school during this time, and, and this education mattered to me, and I'm from this place. Or maybe today you're wearing like a, or you've worn a letter jacket in your life, and so you're part of the band or some sport, and so it, it marked you in that way. Um, maybe today, some of you I've seen already, I, I knew I could say this safely, are wearing shirts that have a block M on them, representing some university, and like you're a fan of some place. There's no need to cheer, come on. Right? Some of you are wearing rings that signify, that signify you're connected to a significant other, and so you're committed to them. Right? Um, you're wearing something that maybe marks you in some way, shape, or form. And so I was thinking how those things mark us, and they define us, but the other things define us at a much deeper level. There are things that mark us and mark our lives and leave us asking this question. And so I have this question, what does mark your life? This is the question really at the heart of what we've been talking about the last few weeks as we look at Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. We've been looking at this idea that he's been talking about that, that if we live as the people of God, we'll have marks of Jesus all over our life. And so he's kind of wrapping up here. There's chapter 6, but it's really more about like, hey, it's great to see you. Hope you do well. But chapter 5 really is the culmination of his letter. And so this is what we're going to look at today. And so here's what Paul writes. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. So when our kids were little... Um, when they're really little, right, we had to help them with everything. That's how that works when you have kids, right? You, you kind of take care of everything. You change diapers, you feed them, they're reliant on you for everything. But as they get a little older, there was a shift in both our kids. Um, and they begin to use a phrase, and I might be butchering the words at some level from each of them differently, but they would say this, uh, I do it myself, right? We don't talk about grammar when your kids are little because grammar is always bad, right? Like, I do it myself. Can I help you with that shirt? I do it myself. It doesn't matter that the armhole is now used as the head hole. Like, I do it myself, Right? Uh, can I cut up my, your food for you? I do it myself. Can I pour your juice because I don't want to clean up the mess? I do it myself. It means I'm going to clean up the juice, right? Like, we know how this works. 
And so I wish my kids were the only ones that have shown like a stubborn streak and independence. Right? Some of it's really good. But when we get older, um, we say I do it myself too. We just do it with a little more tact. Right? We say things like this. Uh, I don't want to burden anyone else. Sounds so like, right, just generous. It's not really what it is most of the time. We take it even further. It's my life and I'll live it how I want. Or another line, and I will get to this one in just a moment. I'm free to do as I please. Every time I hear that line, I want to ask a question. I don't. I want to. I don't do it, but I wish to. I did. I want to say, are you actually free to do as you please? Are you actually free to do whatever you want to do? And you're like, well, you know, we live in America. It's a free country. Most Western countries are free countries. You can do what you want. Well, you can until your freedom impinges upon someone else's freedom, and then you can't do it anymore. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not really freedom. I'm like, you're right. But if you really want freedom where you can do whatever you want with no consequence, that's called anarchy. And that sounds like a terrible idea. I like roads and stop signs. You know, I like the fact that my kids have schools to go to and that, you know, some people fix some of the stuff that happens that gets broken in the community in which we live. Right? Some of you really like Social Security because you get a check for that. I hope someday I get a check for that. Right? Like, some of you really love the way that some of this works, but none of that exists if anarchy is what we live in. So in other words, we like the idea of freedom, but it leads to a different question. What does freedom actually look like? What does freedom look like in our lives? And then this question becomes, what will we do with that freedom? And this is what Paul's been trying to get at his entire letter. He's been trying to ask this question, help people know, what does it look like to know the freedom that can only come from Jesus? What does it look to have the freedom that can only come from him, right? And, and sometimes we, we, we confuse what freedom is or isn't. In fact, um, freedom is not a license to do whatever we want but it's a freedom from something to something. Said differently, I'd say it this way. True freedom is a freedom to something, not just from something. This is why Paul has been talking continually about freedom from the law, right? There's 600-some laws and rules in the Old Testament, and Paul's been saying again and again, if you're going to choose to obey one of them, you've got to obey them all. All of them. And you're like, well, that sounds like um, a terrible idea. Because I'm probably not going to make all of them. And he's like, yeah, you're not. That's the whole point of what I'm trying to get across here. In Jesus, you can come to know freedom. By the way, side note to what Paul says here. Um, all the time, Paul in various other writings, not in the Church of Galatia, but he writes that in his freedom, he chooses slavery to Christ. And you're like, well, why would he do that? Because here's the reality for all of us. Every single one of us is a slave to something. And you're like, well, not me. I'm, I'm my own person. Well, then you're a slave to yourself. And you've become your own God. Like for all of us, we're a slave to something. Like what, whatever it might be, we're a slave to something. And, and so what Paul's saying is in our freedom, what if we chose slavery to Jesus and we just committed ourselves to him? What we might find is in that kind of freedom, it actually leads to life. And what do we do with that? This is the line that we come back to. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Sometimes we'll say things like this, right? Like, well, if you just believe, just have belief. But that's not what faith is. Faith is belief in action. It is an activity. It is more than that. It's why that faith expressing itself through love, we can say this. Love is a verb, right? It's been a long time for some of us who've had English. Some of you guys are in, like, in high school, middle school. Like, you know that love is a verb because you paid attention in English class, hopefully. If not, maybe you'll do better now. But, but here's the reality for us. Um, Verbs are weird for us, and we don't know what to do with love in that way. In fact, love, we, we have a, 
there are five Greek words for the word love. In our language, we have one, and they used five, right? Because I can say this. I love pizza. True statement. I love my kids. I don't love my kids at equal level to pizza, by the way. I do love my kids more than pizza. But the word is the same, right? So the Greek word here for love is agape. You're like, okay, well, that sounds nice. It's a love, but what does that kind of love mean? Well, here's a definition for agape. So lean in and listen to this. If you get nothing out of all of today, listen to the kind of love that those who call themselves followers of Jesus are supposed to live out. Here's what agape love is. Agape means unconquerable benevolence. It means that no matter what a person may do to us by way of insult or injury or humiliation, we will never seek anything but their highest good. It is therefore a feeling of the mind as much as of the heart. It concerns the will as much as the emotions. It describes the deliberate effort which we can make only with the help of God never to seek anything but the best, even for those who seek the worst for us. Well, shoot, I like love like pizza better than that one. Because that's way easier. Sounds simple enough, right? To love, to want the highest good for people who have wronged us and treated us poorly, to long for their highest good, that's what it looks like to love as Christ is calling us to love. And Paul goes on to explain more of this in verse 13. And what it looks like to live in this place where we love others in this way. Here's what he writes. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. What Paul is saying, if you have been freed from your sin, if you've been freed from what has held you in bondage, if you've been freed from what has been broken in your life and God has begun to restore things in your heart and in your mind, if that's true, then so what? So what do you do? You love. How? Serving one another humbly in love. Why? Because all the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament laws are summarized in this one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have to be honest with you, not unlike many in the first century who were trying to define who your neighbor was, right? I love the idea of, of many had, had tried to whittle this down, right, to create a narrow window of who my neighbor was. And so they would they'd say, well, you know, your neighbor, it sounded like your neighbor had to look like you and talk like you and act like you and be like you. Well, you know what? I can love those people pretty easily. If they like the same things I like, if they do the same things I do, if they have the same value system. But, but I'm... I'm fairly certain that is not at all what the church embraced. In fact, I know it's not what the church embraced, and it's not what Jesus taught. What we find is this, that everyone is called to be my neighbor. People who look like me and don't look like me. People who talk like me and don't talk like me. People who have the same values I have and don't have the same values I have. People who vote like me and don't vote like me. All of them are called to be my neighbor. Now, I'd like to say to Paul, hey, Paul, so... Here's my question. If I were hypothetically to move to a neighborhood and I could pick all my neighbors and I knew them all and I loved them all really well, right? Would I be living this idea that loving one another humbly in love? Would I, would I be doing this loving your neighbor as yourself thing that you're writing about here that Jesus called us to? Would I be doing that? And I like my neighbors, by the way, but, but still, if I could even be more selective to my neighbors and make, just choose the people around them. And I, here's what I'm pretty sure Paul would say to me. Um, sure, pick your neighbors. Love the people you like, that are like you. 
But know this, you're not following Jesus. The freedom you could have in him, you're not living into. In fact, you're choosing to live from a radically different place of slavery. Because you're a slave to your own ideas and what you value and not what God values. So as much as I would love to say, who's my neighbor, I can't really do it in that way. In fact, that's why he writes this next line. If you bite and devour each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Why? Why does he write that? Because you and I, we either live lives that build one another up or tear one another down. We live a life that either builds people up or tears people down. There's not a lot of room in the middle for that. And then Paul begins to write things that keep us from loving other people well. Right now, now Paul in his writings, maybe some of you have read much of what Paul's written in the New Testament, and, and a lot of times, like the first half to two thirds of Paul's letters, like except for Romans, it's almost the whole thing, the first twelve chapters in Romans. But he writes, and it's kind of like philosophical, right? It's theological, it's doctrinal, it's kind of heady stuff. It's more hypothetically, it's it's philosophy, and and he writes all that, and then, but Paul, because he also is a church leader, he wants to be very very practical, and so he shifts in all his writings. He goes from the hypothetical, theoretical kind of stuff to like, okay, now here's what you do. So he begins with this idea, love your neighbor as yourself. Like that's a practical application. But he goes on to be even more practical, not kind of pie in the sky philosophy, but here's what it looks like to not love. And then he also then gives us at the end of this chapter what it looks like to love, to live from this place of love. And so he writes these things, these things that keep us apart from Christ, that keep us separated, that keep us in bondage over and over again. So here's what he writes. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. By the way, I wish he didn't say and the like because he means like this isn't all of it, by the way. This is just a lot of it. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul is writing about flesh and spirit. And we often think of like Plato's philosophy, like the spirit's up here and the body's down here and the body's bad and the spirit's good. That is not at all what Paul is trying to say. In fact, what Paul is trying to say is this, and and I'll give a definition that might be helpful for us to how we define flesh. All right, here are these words. Our base primal animalistic drive for self-gratification, especially as it pertains to sensuality and survival. Said differently, we could call them disordered desires. Many of them in some level may not seem all that bad, but if we twist them in just a certain way, all of a sudden they become bad. And this leads to a deeper question for you and I. Where does our true identity lie? What is our deepest motivation? Is our heart marked by Jesus? Or is our heart marked by the things of the flesh? So what's this look like in a practical sense for us? Not long ago, I was listening to a conversation, and I'll leave out the subject matter because it's not fair, and I wouldn't want, um, it's just conversation I was eavesdropping in on. And two people were talking, and they both were part of a church, and they were talking about how um, 
they, they didn't disagree that something was definitely wrong. Like, they knew it was wrong. That wasn't really even part of the conversation at all. Like, they knew it was wrong, but, but they were talking about what they're going to do with that. And one of them used these words. Our God is a forgiving God, so go ahead and do it and just ask for forgiveness when you're done. And, and I so badly wanted to speak into that, but I wasn't invited into the conversation, and it wasn't my place, and so I didn't say anything, but I just grieved over the conversation. And here's why, because what I've come to believe, and what Paul's trying to get us to know in regards to our freedom, freedom in Christ is not an invitation to do whatever you want and then ask for forgiveness. In fact, what Paul would say is you've never come to know true freedom in Christ. Because in that, we're not truly repentant before God. We don't have any desire to change our life. We just want to live how we want and God to bless it, which is never found in the scriptures. But I like these words of William Barclay when he talks about what's this kind of Christian freedom look like. He says this, Christian freedom is not license, in other words, to do whatever I want, for the simple but tremendous reason that the Christian is not a person who has become free to sin, but a person who by the grace of God has become free not to sin. Paul lists the things of the flesh, and you're like, well, yeah, some of those things are fun. Yes, sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, no one would do it, by the way. But the problem is, in it's fun for us, it feels good in the moment, it often leaves us feeling empty, or it wounds another for us to do it. If the truth is, we all know that's true. If sin wasn't fun, none of us would do it, because we're like, oh yeah, I'll do what's right. But that's not how that works. The idea that in our freedom we would choose to live out of that, to not live in slavery or bondage to things that can hold us captive. Right? So here's an example that might be helpful to think about what this looks like in our lives. So this week is Thanksgiving and Thursday. There will be a moment in that day that I guarantee you I will have a decision to make. My decision will be this. I know I'm full. And I can eat a little bit more or I can stop. If I stop, I'll feel pretty good about the day. If I eat just a little bit more, I will regret it just a few minutes later, and the rest of the evening will be a bummer, right? I'll just feel like garbage in the corner. This is what sin is like in our life. There's usually a line in almost every area of life that if we cross it, like then we now regret it. We're now living into a way of life that God has called her to live counter to and it may feel good even in the moment, but you're going to regret it. It's going to break your relationship with God or break your relationship with someone else. It leads to more and more brokenness. But here's the reality for Paul, for the New Testament church, and for Jesus. They offered up a radical new vision for what it looks like to live and to love as God has invited his people to live in the world. A new way to live counter to the way that many have lived in the world. It was revolutionary in the first century, and truthfully, it's just as revolutionary in the 21st century. They offered up a vision of a new sexual ethic between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. They offered a vision about caring for others above yourselves, about selflessness and sacrifice as a way of life. They offered up this idea that we're going to care for widows and orphans and those who are oppressed and marginalized more than ourselves. In fact, one of the crazy things that marked the early church was this, that plagues would often happen in major cities. Rome was a major city. Plagues would happen. Anybody with money would run out. They'd leave. They'd go. And then those who are poor would stay and they'd be sick. And they die. But the craziest thing began to happen is those who, when they became followers of Jesus, started staying in these places. And they started caring for those who were poor and sick. 
and had been pushed to the margins, even if they could afford to leave. And some of them who stayed and cared even died themselves from the plagues they were trying to help others with. Why? Because when we've come to know the freedom in Christ, that we know we're not just freed from something, we're freed for something. We're freed to love others in ways that are inexplicable and beyond our imagination. We have been marked by Jesus in such a way that everything else becomes secondary. Our primary identity is knowing and being known by him and sharing that with other people. Freedom found in him leads to selflessness, not selfishness. In fact, it brings to the end of Paul's writing, what's it look like for us to not live by the things of the flesh, but to live by the things of the Spirit? Here's what Paul says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that should mark the followers of Jesus, and often they don't mark our lives. Too often we're more marked by the things of the flesh than we are by the things of the Spirit. And what Paul is trying to get across is if we allow those things to be crucified with Christ, we can live with true freedom, and we can live from this place in which the fruits of the Spirit begin to take root in our lives. But here's the reality for us. Um, some of us, our soil is not very cultivated. Like, it's not done well. Like, I, I'm not a farmer. This probably doesn't shock any of you who know me. I have zero ability to grow anything except for grass. Right? I do care about grass, and I want to look green, and all. I mean, so I... I Kind of play with that. But I've never planted a garden. I've planted one tree in my life, and it lasted about two months. It was an apple tree, and it might have been dead before I put it in the ground, for all I know. But it did not make it. But I know this, um, thanks to my friends at Google. Um, did you know that strawberries are the, like one of the only fruits that can be produced in one year, right? They come out that first year. Most fruits don't come out right away. They take some time. In fact, so if you were to, to plant a vineyard and try to grow grapes, what you'd find is it takes about three years for the first grapes to come. And then if you were to plant actual apple trees and you were more successful than I, most apple trees take about eight years to produce fruits. In fact, what you begin to say, like, well, why are you talking about this? Because some of the fruits in our lives take some time. In fact, there's a tree uh, that's found in Africa and in Madagascar both, and it's called the bobab tree. Right, and here's a picture of the bobab tree. This tree takes upwards of 100 years or more to produce fruit. By the way, so if you and I planted this tree, maybe our grandkids could use it, but our kids probably could never get anything from it. It's crazy, right? So this tree creates its own ecosystem, right? It's called the tree of life in Africa, right? Because it's so large. Um, if you've been to like Disney World's Animal Kingdom, that's the tree in the middle. It's a bobab tree. Right? And, and they're huge, right? Sometimes they get large enough that 40 people can fit inside them, and people make them into houses and all kinds of crazy stuff. Some of them are 2,000-plus years old. So these trees have created whole ecosystems of life, and they continue to bear fruit after 100 years. But for some of them, they don't bear fruit until then. You're like, well, what, what's the good in them? But they do create life and opportunity for other people. So what's my point? For some of us in this room, there are some things like maybe for us, like living with joy after we came to know Jesus, super easy. Right? Like, I was really joyful. I was really happy. It was not a hard thing. For others of us, 
man, I don't have any patience and I'm working on it. God's still working on me. For some of us, self-control has been easy. Like God got to change our heart and it's been easy. For others of us, when we just come off the handle and can't control ourselves in any kind of way. But here's the thing for us. These are not listed as optional fruits of the Spirit. They're listed as fruits of the Spirit. That We're called to live this way. We're to crucify the desires of the flesh and to live as a people who are so radically transformed by the fruits of the Spirit. And we do those by the rhythms and the practices of our life. So we have a phrase we use here, right? We, we say our church exists to connect people to people and people to Jesus. And we add a phrase to this saying, like, because why? Well, because God is for you. We think God's for all people, for your future and for your family and for this community, right? We use the phrase for the lakeshore. I mean, God's for all those things. And so we're hoping that over time that people, the rhythms of our life and the, like, the practices that we embrace, like going to church on a Sunday morning is a spiritual practice, by the way. It is one of the ways that we move towards being someone who bears fruit, right? We also do it through prayer, through silence and solitude and fasting. And like those are other practices that help us to bear fruit in our life. But, but sometimes when, when over time we are changed, right? It's a cool thing that happens. We begin to bear fruit in ways we never thought possible. So I told this story, story with her permission in the first service, and I'll tell it again here. Uh, so this week, I was meeting with Jerry Ferrier, and he's part of a, a small group I'm a part of. And, and, and so I've known him for years, and then he told me this story that literally made me weep. Um, so last week, Jerry's a fireman, if you didn't know that. And so Jerry was home working in his yard, and, and this guy walks by. And um, you know, because he's a fireman, he knows all the, the markings of someone who's addicted to methamphetamine, right? This is a meth addict. He knows without a doubt in his mind, he's picking his face, all the marks of that. And so he stops Jerry, and Jerry starts talking to him, and the guy goes, I just need some money. And you're like, well, you know, meth addict, you don't give money to drug, drug addicts because they're just going to go buy more drugs. Maybe, I don't know. But here's what Jerry did. Jerry felt compelled to do something for this guy, went inside, got some money, came back outside, asked the guy's name, asked the story, and he said, hey, can, can I pray for you? And so you're like, well, that doesn't seem like that big a deal to pray for someone. You don't know Jerry then. Like, Jerry's never prayed for anyone out loud before. And by the way, he found out that he's going to have to start praying in our small group now. So, um, sorry, buddy. Now I know you can. But Jerry prayed for that man and prayed a prayer of blessing on his life and then sent him on his way and even asked us to pray for him as well. Like, well, why would you tell that story? It doesn't sound like anything radical. Yeah, but five or six years ago, Jerry would have never done that. Ever. He would have either ignored the guy, told him to get off his lawn. He never would have been that person in that way. But there's something that happens when we begin to crucify the things of the flesh and we begin to embrace the fruits of the Spirit. When we put in new practices in our life that begin to transform us, we begin to look and to sound and to act like different people. And so I was thinking for us today, what might it look like for us that if we would choose, choose the freedom we can have in Christ to be freed from the things that have held us in bondage or in sin, Choose to be set free so that we could love our neighbor as ourselves, so that we could love one another humbly in love, so that we could be the kind of people who live shaped by the Spirit, so that we could add practices to our life that make us look and sound and act more like Jesus, so we create opportunities for God's Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds, so that we can become fully who God has created us to be. What might happen? if we were marked by Jesus in that way? How might we love our neighbors in ways we've never loved before? How might we be so radically transformed that all of us would talk to a neighbor walking by in the street and ask, hey, can I just pray for you? What might happen 
if those who call themselves followers of Jesus lived as people who, who crucified the things of the flesh and lived as a people transformed by the fruits of the Spirit? What, what might happen if we live truly in embrace the day that God is for our communities, for the lake shore, these for all people? What might happen if you and I lived in that kind of way? What might happen if the fruits of the Spirit became more evident in our life? What if we begin to bear good fruit? We pray with me today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in these moments. For the way in which you desire to set us free from things that have held us captive, that have strangled our heart, that have marked our lives in ways that don't lead to life or to love. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to live into this radical new vision of what you, your son, has for us to live as a part of the kingdom of God here and now, that we might live as a people who've been so transformed by your goodness and by your grace. That we would come to know the fullness of your love that would set us free from whatever is holding us captive this day. That we lay down whatever it is that has burdened us or hindered us. That we recognize you can and will do a work in us if we will surrender ourselves to your love. we might find freedom in you so that we can love others the way you love them. And so, Father, we ask today that you would help us to recognize that there may be some things in our life we need to lay down, to let go of. So please help us this week to learn to live in tune with your spirit, to develop the practices and the rhythms of life that help us to connect with you. So that maybe, just maybe, we live as a unique people who've been so radically transformed by the goodness of God. We truly live as a people full of gratitude. We truly live as a people full of faith and hope and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.